you would join me then in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, and we'll be looking this morning at verses 9 through 20, 9 through 20. Jesus once said, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you have sent. And so the words that we have this morning, as Jesus reveals himself to us, this is life. And so let's, um, let's give them the attention that they and he deserve. The Revelation to John, chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Oh, Lord our God, it is only the Spirit of God that can take uh, these words and turn them into truth and a vision of reality, a view of the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ that compels us to believe and to love him and to trust him, to worship him. And Father, we believe that this is the purpose this word was given to us. Lord Jesus Christ, it is your desire to show yourself to us your church. And so we pray that the Spirit now would give us the eyes to see and the heart to believe and to respond in faith and obedience because, Lord Jesus, you are worthy. We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, In his book uh, entitled In Christ Alone, Sinclair Ferguson talks about a mythical creature um, who is loved and trusted by many people. Uh, This mythical creature is celebrated particularly around Christmas time. Uh, he's full of good cheer. He does all that he can to satisfy the wishes of uh, all those who've been good. Uh, you may think that uh, he's speaking of Santa Claus, but uh, Sinclair uh, explains that he's, he's actually talking about a mythical creature uh, whom he names Santa Christ. Santa Christ. Uh, Being a mythical creature, Santa Christ uh, takes different forms according to uh, personal preferences. 
But the basic idea is that a Santa Christ, or Jesus as he's also known, uh, he exists as a kind, uh, heavenly being who doesn't judge. He accepts and affirms all people as they are, where they are, regardless of faith or obedience. His, his great desire um, is simply to help people live the most happy, satisfied, and fulfilling lives uh, that they can. I'm sure that you've met people who actually believe in Santa Christ, uh, people who confidently affirm their faith in Jesus uh, are very assured that he loves them dearly, uh, though they profess no creed, attend no church, and follow no moral guidelines other than what seems reasonable to them. Uh, a few weeks ago, we took uh, the high school theology class to Rivertown Mall and just broke up into small groups, and we uh, w- went throughout the mall to talk to people about uh, issues related to religion and faith and God. And uh, the first group that I was with uh, several others and we came uh, across several young ladies um, having uh, some ice cream there in a a little seating uh, area to sit. And so we just approached them. They were very kind, very gracious. Asked them sort of, what do you believe about God? And and uh, they affirmed us, they, they believe in God, and, and one even was uh, very, I, I'm a, definitely a Christian, I believe in Jesus, and we were thankful for that. Uh, we asked them where they go to church, it got, that got really fuzzy. Um, we asked, uh, I asked them the question, do you think that, that uh, we should try to convince people of other religions that they need to leave that religion and, and come to God, or do you think that uh, people should be able to just sort of uh, you know, discover God as they like. And I also asked them, do you think that um, there are, there's a standard of, uh, of moral laws that God has that everyone is required to obey? Or I said, particularly, you know, the sexuality is an issue that's hotly debated today. Do you think that people uh, are um, obligated to do what, you know, the Bible says? Or should people um, be able to, you know, sort of um, do what seems best to them and and they, they said that people should definitely have the right to determine for themselves what they believe about God, that we should, Christians should never try to tell other religions uh, that Jesus is the only way. One of the girls said, I, I'm confident, I'm 90% certain that the Bible says you must not uh, shove your religion down anyone else's throat. Well, I'm quite certain it doesn't say that. Um, what was frightening was the conviction she had that it was a moral obligation for Christians not to share their faith or to tell anyone that they might be wrong either in their faith or practice and that Christians also then are free to live their life according to what seems well, reasonable to them. Uh, that, you see, is, is a faith in Santa Christ, not the real Jesus. Uh, we, we need to recognize we live in a, in a culture that is profoundly confused about who Jesus really is and what he's actually like, and that cultural confusion impacts the church, and it's possible that it impacts us. Uh, maybe our Jesus is more like Santa Christ than we would care to admit. Uh, if you spend more time in prayer asking Jesus to give you things uh, than you do praising him for who he is and thanking him for all of his benefits and blessings, you might believe in Santa Christ. Uh, if your Jesus never frightens you because of his power, his sheer overwhelming holiness and glory, if you find that you um, complain about his failures uh, to meet your needs, without deep repentance concerning your failure to meet his commands, you might believe in Santa Christ. 
If you're not really that concerned about your sins because Jesus knows you're only human and you're doing the best you can, you definitely believe in Santa Christ. The Jesus that you profess is not the real Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. And so the book of Revelation is the word from Jesus given to the church then and now to people like us, people who are tempted to pretend that Jesus is something other than he is. In our text this morning, John has a vision of the real Jesus, King Jesus, a Jesus who's quite a bit more traumatizing, shocking, and overwhelming than the gentle, user-friendly version that we've grown accustomed to. Uh, John is stunned and stupefied by the crushing majesty of this Jesus. He is awesome, overwhelming, holy, sovereign, judging, destroying, glorious, and good. And his dazzling splendor reduces John to quivering flesh. This is the Jesus we'll see this morning and throughout the book of Revelation. A Jesus profoundly more robust and terrifying and glorious and good than Santa Christ. We're going to begin just by looking at the context where John um, introduces himself to us in a wonderful way that reminds all of us who we are and what our calling is. Uh, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus Christ. John begins by taking his old apostolic arms. He's in his 90s, most likely. Uh, He folds those arms all around the family of God, identifying with them as his brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm your brother. But the the fellowship that uh, John points us to is not just a common familial relationship that we have because we believe in Jesus together, but he points to a partnership that we have as kingdom citizens. Uh, It's a fellowship both in the family and in the family business. When uh, growing up on the family farm uh, meant that, uh, I was not just a member of the Van Dyke family, but uh, I was a co-participant in the mission of North Evergreen Farm. Uh, To be a member of the one made you a participant on the other, whether you wanted to be or not. Okay, it's just how it worked. And you didn't choose to do either. But if you were a Van Dyke, right, at that particular address, you were a participant not only in the family, but in the mission, uh, the family business. Well, that's exactly what it's like for Christians. That uh, this, this fellowship that we have with Jesus means you're not just a member of the family, You're a member of the kingdom, and then you're called to kingdom responsibilities and obligations, the kingdom mission. And John uh, tells us that all of these responsibilities, all this calling that we have, it's all wrapped up in in Jesus, in Christ, right? the, The kingdom and tribulation and endurance that are in Jesus. It all flows from this key core reality that when you came to faith in Jesus Christ by the power of God, you were united to Jesus Christ. And being united to him meant you got united to his whole family and you got united to his kingdom and his mission. It's just the way it works. And John explains then that that, uh, that reality of being united to Jesus Christ and participating in the kingdom is going to look like tribulation and endurance. 
Tribulation and endurance. It's precisely because you belong to Christ that you will find yourself in the context of tribulation and patient endurance. And the task of kingdom citizens is to experience trouble for the name of Jesus Christ and to, to patiently endure that trouble. It's the job description, in a sense, of kingdom citizens. And this is not hypothetical. The early church is experiencing this reality. John himself is experiencing this reality. But he's not the only one. Many were suffering and being put to death for the cause of Christ. Many still are. Christians around the world today. And not just a small minority. The truth is the majority. Mindy Bells in a recent World Magazine article says the persecution index is rising. You know this is true when you see headlines of major newspapers devoted to the latest Boko Haram violence against Christians in Nigeria or Muslims, uh, Muslim mobs chasing a poor Christian family in Pakistan. Last year, one in nine Christians experienced serious persecution, 14% over the previous year. But she goes on to say that 70% of the world's, of Christians around the world, experience oppression and persecution of one sort or another. That means that we are in the minority. God's people are without doubt the most oppressed and persecuted people in the world. And what we need to understand is, is that's not a bug in the system. That's, that's, it's designed in the program. Uh, that, that is kingdom reality. It's, it's a kingdom phenomenon. It's, it's normal. It's not strange. And it's a truth that we as American Christians particularly need to take to heart because we don't have a robust functioning biblical theology of suffering. We tend to interpret suffering either as uh, God punishing us for doing something wrong or God forgetting about us. And both of those things couldn't possibly be further from the truth. The Lord will discipline us, but he's not, but he's not taking it out on you and just making you pay. Jesus paid. And the Father never forgets his own. The truth that we have here is that, that suffering is our calling. It's a gift that God gives to his people. Philippians 1.29, Paul says, it has been granted to you. It's a, it's a word for a gift, something that is graciously given. It's been granted to you by God that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, you need to have that sort of mindset. You see, if you're going to stand and patiently endure suffering for Jesus' sake. And that's exactly what we're called to do. Our calling is not just to believe in Jesus and hunker down and wait for the end. Our calling is to believe in Jesus and to stand then in this dark age, in this evil world, engaged in the mission of Christ. That's the calling. That we're to take up the message of the kingdom. And for that, we will be opposed and persecuted. John's a living example. Why is he writing from the island of Patmos? What's he doing there? He's got, he's got work to do. Why is he, what's he doing uh, retiring right on, on this uh, nice island out in the middle of the Aegean Sea? Well, he's not retiring. He's in prison there. Why? He tells us why. On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. One of my commentators pointed out that uh, in the modern world, at least uh, until the recent past, but in the modern world, Christianity was allowed 
to be, um, you know, a religion about basic being good people, having good morals, having religious values, even if it wasn't true, what was, you know, what we say about Jesus, um, we, we, uh, there's a benefit we can, we can have in the world by, by talking about good morals and having good religious values, and, and in that, the, the, the Christianity is just like the other major world religions. We're all basically trying to do the same thing. Well, John's words utterly defy that assumption. The commentator writes, John is quite clear why he has been sent to Patmos. Patmos, it is certainly not because he had religious values. The Roman soldiers did not come knocking on his door in Ephesus saying, John, we understand that you're a man of faith and you have values which are shared by all the major world religions. And consequently, we are sending you to do hard labor on Patmos. There's no offense, you see, in having religious values. None at all. And that's not what John is doing. That's not why he's on the island of Patmos. He's there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's there because he uh, insisted on proclaiming in a pagan world that Jesus Christ is the Lord and King. That he is the only hope for sinners And he's the only sovereign Lord and King, no matter what Domitian or whoever the current emperor uh, might say from Rome. And that's what offended the world, this, this insistence on Jesus as Lord and Christ. That's why the church will suffer. We, (coughs) excuse me, we'll talk about this more as we get into the letters to the churches, but we live in in a culture very much like the Roman culture. The Roman culture was willing to allow you to believe in Jesus as long as you didn't insist that he's the only God. And that he's the only way to salvation. The the Roman culture sort of worked by go along to get along. We'll let you believe in your faith. So tolerance, religious tolerance was the rule of the day. It's exactly the world we live in today. That the the great unifying theme is tolerance. That's what makes you a good citizen. And if you refuse to be tolerant of other religions and other practices, uh, particularly sexual practices, if you refuse to be tolerant, you're not being a good citizen, and you, you need to be um, sort of marked off. You need to be or, or shamed. You're not safe. The church isn't safe in this dark world. Uh, but, so we're, we're going we're gonna to come into oppression. We're going we're to face this, and this is why we have to see all that Jesus is. A, a Santa Christ is not going to be sufficient when the tribulation actually comes. We're going to need to know the real Jesus. And that's why Jesus commands John, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. This vision is for the church, not just the seven churches in Asia Minor. There were, as we said last week, there are other churches there. Certainly they're included. And this is for the church of all ages. What does John see? Well, the first thing he sees are lampstands. Seven lampstands, seven being the number of fullness. Uh, we're told exactly what they represent. We'll often be told in the book of Revelation uh, that this symbol uh, stands for this reality. And we're told in verse 20, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Uh, the imagery comes right out of the Old Testament. If you remember the tabernacle and the temple, there was a lampstand, one of the articles of, of uh, holy furniture that God uh, instructed to be built and placed in the holy place. 
and that, uh, that lampstand would, uh, would be taken care of by the priest. And they were there to make sure that the wick was trimmed, uh, the oil was always replenished, because that light was never supposed to go out. It represents the presence of God, the God who is light. Jesus, uh, as the priest, is standing in this vision in the middle of the lampstands. Jesus is the priest in the, in the house of God, in his church, uh, who's trimming the wicks, uh, who's, uh, who's steering our lives and correcting and training and rebuking, teaching. Jesus is the one who has poured out his Holy Spirit, which is the oil that keeps the lamp burning, keeps the light shining. So it's a very relevant imagery, very relevant vision. Uh, there's also a, a, a prophecy. This would be related to a prophecy in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah was a prophet given, sent to God's people after the Babylonian captivity. Zerubbabel is trying to rebuild the temple. It had been destroyed. And, he's, and he's, uh, he's facing a great deal of opposition as he's seeking to rebuild the temple. And Zechariah, the prophet of God, is given a vision for Zerubbabel of a lampstand, and the oil never goes out. It's sort of, uh, it works all by itself. And the message is, in Zechariah 4, God says, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. The temple is going to be built, but it's not going to be because of Zerubbabel's strength. It's going to be because of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be a work of God. That's exactly the, true, the, the same thing true for the church today. It's not by our strength. We, the church is being built in an age of opposition, and yet the church continues to be built and continues to grow. Why? <laughs> because it's a work of God. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. How is it that there are Christians all over this globe? There are Christians in North Korea, where, where the suggestion of you being a Christian means you, you are going to experience the most horrific persecution. Why would you be a Christian in North Korea? Because Jesus Christ will gather his elect, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. But you see, because of what the church is then, uh, we have this mission of shining. Why a lamp? Why does, why does God use a lampstand to signify the church? Because we have a mission to shine the light of the truth and the grace, the knowledge of God into the darkness of this world. And if we fail in that mission, if we fail either by um, hiding our light because of the oppression we face, or tainting the light because of cultural accommodation. We just decide to go along with the world. You see so many churches doing this, precisely in the area of sexual ethics. We're just going to reinterpret Scripture now so that it fits with the cultural interpretation. Uh, whether the, the church um, covers its light through false teaching, you see, if that happens, and it does happen, we're violating our mission, our reason for existence. And we will come under the judgment of God. That's going to be, we're going to see that in the, the letters to the churches. Jesus, the judge, will judge his church. What do you do when a, when a bulb is burnt out, a light bulb burns out? You throw it away. What does Jesus threaten to do with the church of Laodicea? <coughs> he threatens to spew them out of his mouth. They've lost their mission. They're not shining the light. They need to repent. <coughs> but as, <coughs> excuse me, 
as we lay hold of our calling, see, as, as we recognize who we are, who Jesus, how Jesus sees his church, what Jesus has called uh, us to do as his church, you see, then, then we, we have the, the incredible confidence we're going to be victorious. We're going, to, uh, we're going to persevere and overcome because Jesus is in our presence. And we're going to be victorious and overcome even if and particularly when we die. But the key to that sort of courage in the face of an oppressing, oppressing, oppressive world, the key to the courage is seeing Jesus. You have to see the real Jesus. And that's what the vision is about. And John says, I saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Again, John is just referencing Daniel 7 and 10, Old Testament a prophetic uh, language here. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel uh, says, I, I saw in the night visions uh, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one though shall not be destroyed. Who does that sound like? Well, that sounds like our Lord Jesus. And that's exactly uh, who it is, as John says, I saw one like the Son of Man, just like Daniel talked about, this sovereign ruler and king over all the earth, uh, this one who is full in his royal kingly authority. There's, uh, there's something going on in the Greek here that, that's not as easily evident in the, uh, in the English translation. Uh, verses 14 through 16 is one long run-on sentence connected with the word and. And so every time John says, I, I saw this, and then I saw this, and then I saw, and, and, and just count them as John goes through them. He says, um, first he says, uh, he describes Jesus' hair, right? Then his eyes, then his feet, and then his voice, and then he's got seven stars in his right hand, and he's got a two-edged sword coming from his mouth, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Seven. On purpose, you see, the, the number of fullness and completion and perfection. And what is the nature of the perfection and the completeness and the fullness? Well, it's, it's, the, it's the sovereign uh, lordship of Jesus Christ as judge over all the earth. All these characteristics speaks to his sovereign authority to rule and to judge. So the hair of his head is white, white like snow. Uh, a white head, a head full of white hair was a, was a sign of age and wisdom, right? Gandalf, just to bring something to mind, right? That signifies, you see Gandalf, you say, oh, there's an old man, wise. Jesus is the fullness of wisdom, he is the Ancient of Days. Uh, his eyes were like flame of fire. The eyes of King Jesus see everything. And, and they see everything in a sense that it purifies. All the untruth is, is burned away. And all that's left is what is actually true. So he sees the secret thoughts of your heart, no matter how much you might want to try to hide them. He sees the things that you do in secret. He sees the motives behind your actions and words as they actually are. And none of our self-justifications or blame-shifting, none of it works. The eyes of fire just go right to the truth. 
Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's Jesus. And this is true even for the church. So in in chapter 2, verse 12, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, I know your works. And he does. He knows all of it, the good and the bad. And he knows all things and sees all things in order to judge all things, to render... um, to those who are faithful, the blessings of the kingdom, and to those who are unfaithful, the judgments. And he does it with utter perfection. His feet are like burnished bronze, uh, refined in a fire, representing absolute purity. Jesus stands on a foundation of absolute moral authority. His voice is like the roar of many waters, a thunderous voice of power, and authority. In his right hand, the hand of domination, he holds seven stars, the the angels of the seven churches. He holds the the destiny of the churches in his hand. From his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword. This is a warrior king who will judge the nations with the words of his mouth. Isaiah 11, 4. He shall strike the earth with a rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Does your Jesus do that? Or do you have have a Santa Christ? The the Jesus of Revelation kills the wicked with the breath of his mouth. Revelation 19.15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike, strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That is meant to make us tremble. Because you see, this is the Jesus who is the head of the church. And so he, he wants the church to know this. Revelation 2.12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. He's writing that to the church. See, I think we tend to think that the Jesus of the church doesn't have this this holy, righteous, judging power and authority. But the, the text clearly shows us the real Jesus. One of the most painful things, experiences in life is, is to be devastated by a condemning word, particularly if it's true. When, when someone just speaks the exact right thing that, that, that is devastating because it's, because it's right, because it's true, you have no defense. On the last day, you see, Jesus will destroy his enemies with his word. He will speak absolute truth concerning what they have done, what they have failed to do, what they rightly, justly, eternally deserve, and what they will receive, the fire of hell, and it will be so. And no one will be able to resist his word because it's true. And he speaks it full of righteous glory. His face was like the sun shining in full strength, far too brilliant to look upon. 
And so John's seen this one like the Son of Man. He does what every single one of us would do. He, he says, I fell at his feet as though dead. I fell at his feet as though dead. I, I, uh, I'm just wondering if that would be a good verse to put over the doorway when we come into the auditorium to worship. Just a reminder. We, we have to admit we live in a day where there's been a, a real a casual attitude to worship. There's not much difference between going to a worship service and going to a, a, a concert. And yet, when John sees Jesus in his glory, he collapses. And remember, John knows Jesus firsthand. John was a friend of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, the one whom Jesus loved. You would think that if anyone had the right to be casual and comfortable around Jesus, it would be John. That it would have been maybe even somehow appropriate for John to say, Jesus, man, it is so good to see you. It's been 60 years. It's not what he does. John, the apostle whom Jesus loves, collapses at his feet as though dead. The sheer glory of Jesus is too much. The weight of the glory of Christ crushing John, the dearly beloved apostle. That's the real Jesus. That's Jesus as he is. That's the Jesus of scripture, the Jesus of human history, the one who actually reigns and lives and rules over our life and over this church. That's the Jesus that you and I are going to meet, as certainly as you're sitting here this morning. But Jesus has a word of assurance for us. In the midst, in the light of his glory, Jesus reaches out his hand and says to John, fear not. Why not? Because Jesus says, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. You see, Jesus wants us to remember who he is in all of his glory. And part of who he is in all of his glory is, is the story of his life, that this is the, the, the son of God who came to earth in human form, dying on behalf of sinners. I died, he says. I died. Why? How could this glorious being ever be, um, suffer death? Well, he wants us to know he died, and he died on purpose. He died with intent. He died for sinners, and he rose to life for their justification. Jesus wants John and the church to see him as he is, an unspeakably mighty, mighty king, a sovereign, sovereign Lord, but he has nail marks in his hand, and the nail marks, you see, remind us over and over again that, that this is the Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. And now reigns for us. Behold, he says, look, see, I am alive forevermore. The real Jesus is no mythical creature. He's the Jesus who walked this earth and carried a cross to Golgotha and died in a cross there, bearing our sin, bearing our guilt, satisfying the demands of justice, and then rising again so that we can be forever set free to live in the glory of of heaven with him. Death really has been conquered. And Jesus reigns as Lord of death and Hades. Hades here is not hell, but the realm of the dead. Keys, Jesus says, I have the keys. Keys are signs of ownership and authority. If, if, uh, if when you buy a car, uh, the, the man hands you the keys. It's your car. Uh, the jailer has the keys to the cell. The banker has the key to the vault. Jesus has the key of death. 
Anyone who enters does so only by the authority and the word of Jesus. And those who come out do so by the word and the authority of King Jesus. Like Lazarus coming out of the tomb. R.C. Sproul in his book, Surprised by Suffering, writes, Jesus holds the keys of death. He holds the keys because he owns the keys. And all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. The angel of death is at his beck and call. Above all the suffering and death stands the crucified and risen Lord. And consequently, friends, those who die in the Lord are not lost, but blessed. Revelation 14, 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. In that book, R.C. says, um, my my father taught me how to die. R.C. was only 17 at the time. His dad was uh, sick for several years. R.C. was not a believer, but his dad was a firm, firm believer. R.C. writes, I will never forget the last words. My father spoke to me. We were seated together on the living room sofa. His body had been ravaged by three strokes. On one, one side of his face was distorted by paralysis. He spoke to me with a heavy slur. His words were difficult to understand, but their meaning was crystal clear. He uttered these words. I fought the good fight. I finished the faith, the race. I've kept the faith. These were the last words he ever spoke to me. Hours later, he suffered his fourth and final cerebral hemorrhage. And only later, when R.C. was converted, did he recognize the wonder and the truth of those words. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. That's how to die well. Isn't that how you want to, to die? Isn't that what you want to be able to say? How's that going to be? How's that going to, how will that happen? And it'll, it'll happen, friends, by keeping our eyes on the real Jesus. The Jesus who, did, who died for us, who conquered the grave on our behalf. The Jesus who was raised to life so that we never fear death and we have the confidence of eternal life. But a real Jesus also who is sovereign king and judge and Lord and who promised to exercise all of his sovereign power on our behalf. behalf so that we would see him in all of his glory. Father, my desire is that they might be with me where I am and see my glory. That was his prayer before he went to the cross. And if that is true, if that's the desire of Jesus, I want to ask you, is this Jesus big enough for all the other details? If he's done all that, is he big enough? Is he glorious enough, mighty enough, faithful enough to take care of you in all the present circumstances of your life? The things that that you are concerned about, anxious about, the things that, uh, that you're grieved about. You have the confidence that this Jesus, the real Jesus, is more than sufficient, more than willing. Then believe in him, and let's follow him. Amen. God in heaven, thank you for showing us Jesus, the real Jesus, in his glory and power. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to do this every day of our life, that we would grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Thank you, Lord, that our loved ones who have died in Christ are able to rejoice today in his victory. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that because you've conquered judgment and death and hell on our behalf, we can have absolute confidence that every circumstance we're facing today is in your hand and in your care, that we cannot be lost and nothing is wasted As we, Lord, submit to you and trust in you, 
Give us joy in this journey. Give us courage to stand. For Lord Jesus, you are coming again very soon. I pray that we'd be ready to meet you as we stand in faith and walk in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.